Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm so glad that you have come along. We have a great show today, an exciting new book that I'm excited to share with you. I think it could be something that could be useful for people, particularly people who are wanting to change up their devotional life a little bit, but may, or preachers who are looking to accentuate things in a different way. So I'm looking forward to telling you about it in just a second. But first, I want you to know that this podcast comes to you from Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we do that through a host of programs, lay initiatives that people can participate in, in addition to bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees. We have just added a course of study for the Global Methodist Church, and we have more than 500 students now here, actually 590 students now at Wesley Biblical Seminary. We have 400% growth over the last five years, and that's particularly come as we've added Global Methodist students. So we're really excited about that new initiative. In addition, I'm thankful to my friends at WPO Development who helped sponsor this podcast. They do capital campaigns, feasibility studies, mission planning studies all around the country. They've helped more than 250 schools, organizations, churches develop capital campaigns and actualize them. They're, they're incredibly successful and effective to come alongside of people and helping them realize their goals. And finally, we have several things coming to you from andymillerthe3rd.com. If you're not on my email list, I'd love for you to sign up for it. And if you do sign up for it, I'll send you this free tool. It's called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. It's a 45-minute teaching for me, and it's a tool. It's an eight-page PDF document that you can use to prepare to teach a Sunday school class or your own sermon preparation. Um, so that's something that comes if you sign up for my email list. And also, there's several other things happening, uh, courses that are available on my website. One is... Uh, a study of the afterlife, five sessions, like think about heaven and hell and various things. I think we might even talk about that today in today's podcast. But um, then we have a few other things too, the study of the book of Jude that's available. There's six sessions there where we walk through the 25 verses in this little book that's incredibly powerful for our time. So you can find out about that at my website at andymillerthe3rd.com. Okay, I am glad to welcome into the podcast Dr. Grace Hamman, who is a scholar of medieval literature. She's a writer. Uh, she's a podcaster. You can find a link to her podcast in our show notes. And she has just come out with a book called Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, published by Zondervan. Grace, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I was really intrigued when I saw this book was coming out, and, it's, and we're recording this on November 8th, and the book just came out a week before this, so I'm excited that it's around. Now, it, your, your bio um, identifies you as an independent scholar of Middle English contemplative writing and poetry. Help us understand what that even is. <laughs> yes, this is a good question. So uh, Middle English is the part of English that comes before early modern English, which is like Shakespeare, that whole era, uh, some of the greatest uh, English poetry comes from that time, George Herbert. So I study the period before that, which is folks like Geoffrey Chaucer, who wrote the Canterbury Tales. Maybe some folks uh, remember reading that in high school or college. And um, so my specialty was poetry and contemplative writing, which is like the mystics, basically yeah. people like Julian of Norwich, who wrote her beautiful texts, the showings, um, poets like William Langland, who wrote uh, Pierce Plowman, all kinds of interesting people. And so that is where my um, my background is, especially in. And then I uh, 
in the book, I expand into a lot of other different kinds of medieval writers and artists, but that's really my backbone and my, the area that I really love. So. So you didn't necessarily like your own research before this book wasn't necessarily centered on looking at how people view Jesus. Is that kind of like something that is an after effect to your own research? Yes. So I got into it, uh, this, this, these different representations of Christ, especially through uh, one of the chapters is about um, Jesus as a mother, which sounds really shocking to us initially, but it's actually this deeply scriptural image that monks and contemplative writers were writing on extensively in the Middle Ages. Um, but I had encountered this image via the writings of Julian of Norwich, who I just mentioned, um, and who writes this just exquisite theological work um, about the love of God and the love of Jesus. Uh, and she has these visions of the cross. And part of her teaching is on this idea of Jesus as a mother and how he, um, like his cry over Jerusalem, how I long yeah. to gather you under my wings. Uh, and so this idea of Christ gathering us up and caring for us and tending to us and uh, nursing us and all this different, really interesting imagery. So that was my uh, kind of entryway into yeah. all these other medieval images because uh, I went, oh, that's such a cool, interesting idea that it, that I had never noticed in scripture, but that these medieval writers were picking up on. Uh, and then after that, I, I really started getting into these other uh, representations, artworks, and it just exploded. It was so fun. Yeah, I, oh, it's so interesting. And, and one day I'll just encourage people as you, you get a chance to see this book, um, I, I encourage people who are presenting on biblical themes to think about going to uh, another generation, a whole, hundreds of years before this. And you, you might get a kind of a fresh wind, uh, fresh language to describe your own spiritual journey, what you see in scripture. And Grace, I love how in the book, just from a kind of like a, a kind of structural standpoint, how you end each book, each chapter with these own meditations and reflections that people can use. So I found it really encouraging and like, I, you know, let me, before we get, well, let me just get setting it all up. You had an interesting moment, maybe in a doctoral seminar, reading the Canterbury Tales, uh, which, I mean, I'm sure you're like, okay, I already know this. It probably worked. I mean, like you said, most people would read that decades before they got into that sort of seminar. But uh, tell us about that moment with the professor that you had and, and the challenge that came and maybe even yes. started this Okay, so that was such a funny realization for me. So I grew up in a Christian home, really steeped in scripture. Lots, I had read the Bible on my own many times. Uh, and as I was in, these, uh, in this doctoral seminar, uh, we were reading the Parsons tale together, which is part of the Canterbury Tales. And it's really less of a exciting pilgrimage tale <laughs> and more of this like dry, long moral treatise. And uh, Chaucer's Parson, who's the teller of the this tale is telling about um, medieval uh, men's clothing and condemning uh, the, the current fashion and its very colorful language about uh, men showing off their private parts and their butts in a very obvious way in these uh, very tight cropped jackets. And so the person is describing this, it's very colorful, um, like the, the word buttocks of a is used multiple times. The yes, word buttocks yes. is used. Okay. <laughs> yes, I'll just say it. And so yes. the whole class, we're all trying very hard not to laugh because this is yeah. so dramatic. The parson then turns and, and and basically says to his audience, like, compare this to the modesty of Jesus and his disciples. 
And my professor, this uh, wonderfully crusty old man uh, who has also read his Bible many times by this point, he's, he says, what Jesus is he talking about? Where in scripture does it talk about Christ's personal modesty and clothing? I, I don't, I, I've never thought of that. And I thought, oh, that's so funny. I, I've never, that didn't strike a, 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 raise any thoughts in me at all. I, because I had been taking for granted a, uh, a version of Jesus that cared a lot about what I wore uh, as, as a young woman growing up that there, where there was a high emphasis on personal modesty and not that modesty is not a bad thing. I think it, it can be a very good thing, but um, that I realized I had a cultural uh, expectation of Jesus where I had totally conflated him with some of these dialogues and conversations over modesty going on in my own present time. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was so funny that it took Chaucer writing about sexy men's jackets and my English <laughs> professor for me to even begin to realize that. So there's this, uh, wonderful freedom in coming to these texts where you go oh their expectations are so different than mine and they not only give me new insight into truths about Christ's character into aspects of who he is but they also highlight ways in which I have been uh, reading things onto him good or bad that really are coming from my own time and place and context yeah, I recognize that culture that you described really well, um, because it was my uh, e evangelical 1990s uh, right. jars of play, WWJD Absolutely. culture, you know, promise ring too, you know, like all that sort of thing. Like, uh, it, it, it's funny, like the way I describe it now, it's just such a, a past tense reality. Uh, <laughs> and there, there, I'll, I'll say, like, uh, there are things from that culture that my own children who are teenagers, young teenagers, um, where I'm like, oh man, a little, a little dash of that might not be so bad. You know, For like sure. uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's pivoted a little bit, but, but still like uh, one of the things, a book that came out in that period um, was uh, Philip Yancey's The Jesus I Never Knew. Yeah. And kind of highlights to say, and, and, and you hit this too. I mean, that's part of the, the, the task of this book is to look at all, all of the various ways that we look at Jesus. And then you're trying to challenge us, I think, to go back a couple of centuries and, or more than just a couple, and, and think through other ways to view Jesus. That's right. That's right. Um, for me, this, this book was, uh, uh, such a project of humility in like a really good way like that can sound like such a like a oh I got really humbled by this but I mean it in such a, a good way where it was both a an ongoing sort of task of self-knowledge where I was going wow oh there's an assumption that I had made without realizing that there's another one there's another one because I was looking at these assumptions that people 700 years ago were making which is just not the same kinds of things that I was thinking. So it was right. really uh, revelatory in that way. And then it, it was also um, really beautiful because th what they were focusing on is different than what I was focusing on. And, mm -hmm. and I think every, uh, so C.S. Lewis has this wonderful um, preface to the works of St. Athanasius, where he talks yeah. about how we're all so grounded in our cultures and we, we live and breathe in this 
you know, sort of sea yeah. of assumptions. And uh, if we read the works of the past, they actually can sort of blow this clean sea breeze, as he calls it, through our minds and help us to see some of the ways that we have contained him according to our cultural mores or our own personal desires. And then also give us some new language, new vocabulary, you know, paradoxically new and ancient concepts yeah. for yeah. knowing him a little more. And so that really has been, that was really this book for me. Oh, I love it. I, that preface is such a powerful preface. Is it like, I honestly, I probably have never heard a preface referred to more than that one. <laughs> it's so good. I, to, I always tell people yeah. I have to read it. It's so good. And he taught, there's a, it's a, it's interesting. And you as a person, you know, studying literature, it's really, um, that preface is a, a piece on how to read. It really <laughs> uh, is. Why we read, why we read old books and mm -hmm. uh, read books more than once. I, I, I love, I just, I think there's something really powerful to it. I love the image of the sea breeze as well. Yes. I wonder, I'm curious, the first, first, one of the first chapters you have is talking about Jesus, the judge. And I imagine that that's where people see the medieval uh, literature going. Like, oh, we can, we see, you have, you talk about the, the doom paintings, these type of things. So tell, tell us what surprised you as you studied the way that the medieval world looked at Jesus, the judge. Yeah, this was a chapter that um, <clears throat> I was kind of dreading writing, to be honest, because it's for exactly sure. the reasons you mentioned, uh, you go, well, that feels very like a little uh, old fashioned um, in an unhelpful way. Like, OK, wow, this is kind of scary. Um, I think sometimes when we think of Jesus, the judge, we think of some uh, people, you know, sort of screaming in your face about how you're going to hell or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so it, it comes with a lot of baggage. Um, and so I approached this and began looking at the the poetry and the paintings and uh, around this idea of uh, especially some of the imagery and revelations about the, the pierced one coming through the clouds, ascending, everyone will see him, everyone will see him, everyone will look him in his face. And so this was an idea that was uh, extremely popular in especially earlier medieval art and then also in later as well. But uh where uh, in every church, really, they would have these massive paintings inside called, uh, in English, it was called doom paintings for, for like our modern doomsday. Um, and doom is just a older form of uh, a word for judgment. So it's a judgment oh, day picture. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so you, you have all these paintings everywhere, and they're at the center of parish life there at in every not just in the big sort of cathedrals that we associate with artwork and uh carvings but in little tiny parish churches as wall paintings and so they were everywhere and i i began to ask okay so um you know why is it so important that these are at the center of community right mm. now yeah, and yeah. um these images of jesus and all the dead rising from the grave and uh and what's funny about a doom painting is that we are in the doom painting um because it's everyone at the consummation of history so it's not just it's not abstract it's actually us and uh what i began to wonder is if this was calling us uh to to look at one another right now and to think about um neighborliness and the ways in which we relate to each other since it's at the heart of community in the parish church and we're all there too so it's not just a 
a future sort of almost abstract moment, uh, judgment day, but actually, hey, what is, uh, what is God calling us into right now in being neighbors to one another? Because um, so much of the scripture of judgment is also wrapped around our neighborliness to one another and, and what we do when faced with um, people in need and, and people who, uh, you know, are not clothed, are thirsty, are hungry. These are all wrapped up in this traditional judgment day imagery. So not just a, a fear of, oh no, a uh, fear of hell, but actually what do I owe my fellow human beings as all of us images of God facing Jesus. Um, and so it was interesting because I had to wrestle with some of some fear around that image and uh, sure. go into that into the chapter. But also I began to realize that um, that in these images, you have both mercy and justice and they're inex yes. inextricable from one another. Um, they are embodied in Christ. And that was a really beautiful realization where I think for a long time, I, I thought about them as uh, sort of opposite to each other, right? You either yeah, have yeah. justice or you have mercy. Oh, yeah, but yeah. when you think of them as totally and perfectly combined in the, in the figure uh, united in, in Christ himself, then you have to kind of start thinking about that differently, not as an either or, but okay, what does it mean to think of Jesus himself as justice? Jesus yes. himself as mercy. So that was that journey of that chapter. And there's, it's kind of complicated. There's a lot more there, but right. uh, it was a good chapter for my personal formation. <laughs> well, and I love that Jesus is at the center of this. I've just recently put out this series on the afterlife and think it's called Heaven um, and Other Destinations. But the idea that I'm trying to convey through that is to get people to think about resurrection, think about judgment, and to, I love the concept, like, and this was really helpful to me in re to read this in your book, that this was, these type of paintings were a centering reality yeah. for communities. So what they're seeing, and then, I don't know, we, growing up in a similar time, um, it's similar to the modesty comments, like, oh, okay, well, we don't, we don't really want to focus on that. Like we, and you, you give a, a story of like, kind of like the sidewalk preacher type of person. And, but yet there's something to this. They're like, if, if this right. is reality, and what I've said to lately is like, uh, in many churches, we'll recite the Apostles' Creed from thence he'll yes. come to judge the living and the dead. If we, if like churches that sing the Gloria Patri, I, I didn't grow up in a liturgical tradition. I'm now often participating in those type of environments where mm -hmm. we, and I, I try to tell people, uh, you all know this is crazy, right? What we're saying. <laughs> world without end amen amen i mean yes. like you hear what you're saying like it, but, but this is and maybe the medieval writers had this in a more dramatic way that could remind it's like almost jarring yes you put them in a position of seeing these bodies and you have some of these pictures these uh pictures paintings um in your book i, I really think it's interesting. there's one that stood out to me and i had never heard of it and so this is i love i love learning new things but um there's this poem called Christ the Third. Was is that what you would call it? Christ Three? Yeah, Christ Three. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I, I'm Andy Miller Third. I can't say so when I see that. That's okay. So, but there's this great line, and I, it's, this is short enough for me to be able to read. Um, but it says this this phrase at, at in a doom painting, they bear their breast hoard before the child of God, right? Yes. Like, yeah. tell us about this this poem. What's going on in it? Yeah. So this this 
uh, poem was part of a set of poems about uh, the life of Christ uh, going from the nativity all the way to judgment day. So quite, quite the big uh, stretch. And it was written in Old English, which is even earlier than, than what I specialize in. And it, it really, when you look at it in texts, it looks almost like German or something. It's very okay. different from modern English. So in my text, it's all translation. But um, the, it has this amazing sequence that is uh, really inspired by uh, Matthew 25 and by Revelation and also by some of the throne room imagery in, in Isaiah. So the 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 biblical, um, I mean, the uh, the poet is taking up all these scriptural images and rewriting them into his own uh, vernacular language and um, and in a very high, you know, poetic way. So this is around the same time as like Beowulf, if anybody, okay, uh, okay, if yeah. any of your listeners have. Yeah, for sure. Beowulf. Yeah. Um, and so. Uh, it's a really cool poem. It's really wild. It's, uh, yeah, it's very, very um, uh, imagistic and um, concrete feeling. And so that image of bearing your breast hoard and everything that, that has, uh, that you've held inside of you, yeah. everything that has been hidden is now coming to the light. Um, and how this is all uh, something that, you're right. You mentioned that we, it's something that we can kind of sidestep over, but, uh, to, to pay attention to it is really important for us and not, not out of, not, not only out of a fear of like, well, I want to, I don't want to go to hell or I don't, or I really right, want right. to go to heaven, but actually out of where we are in our lives right at the moment in being formed as people following Christ and learning to be more like Christ. And so this idea of, I'm seeking justice, not because I'm afraid of hell, but because my injustice creates little hells for other yes. people. Um, and so that relates to that kind of idea of neighborliness again, where it's, yeah. um, all right, we're in this body together. And, and what are we called to as we are become, as we are taking up our crosses and following Christ, um, becoming more like him and, and Hence the then, Matthew 25 emphasis too is, exactly. uh, is so focused on the way that we engage our neighbors and like, but yet that passage, it comes within the eschatological discourse. Like this yes. is like a really yes. intense passage. Yes. And so I think the mistake that we can make is that then we just focus on like, oh, I'm really afraid of hell or, and, and the funny thing is, is that hell is, is, uh, you know, it's not even a focal point of this chapter because the focal point is Jesus where yes, yes. Um, we are uh, figuring out all that stuff is important, but it's all peripheral. Even in the paintings, it's peripheral. Um, mm. And so you are uh, saying, well, what does this mean for my life right now? And not just in a fear of hell or desire of heaven way, but in a way of formation and, and who I am becoming in community and, um, and, so, and how I'm becoming a neighbor uh, in this context. So it's, it, yeah, that's, uh, oh, that's that great. Again, we're uh, friends. We're talking, uh, here in case you're just coming in here with, uh, Jesus through medieval eyes, with Grace Hammond. And, oh, did I say your name, right? You did. You okay, did. Yeah, it's all, I said it wrong when we were, we were first coming, coming on. So I want to make sure I get it right now. You might see me, uh, of course you like, look at probably, uh, a man, man, white man wanting to talk. You probably know what chapter I want to talk about. I want to talk about the night chapter. 
<laughs> this is so fun. I love I love this chapter. Call, call stereotype me all you want, but I loved it. Now, Great. if you have time to get to the lover, I like that one too. I just want to say publicly say I love the chapter about Jesus the lover. But this night chapter was really inspiring. I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed this this imagery that I most of it I never even thought of. Yeah, so, it's uh, such a yeah, oh, go, wait, go for it. No, I'll let you go ahead. Um, oh, I was just going to say, talk about, um, was this a hard one for you to get to? Was this, uh, I mean, you talked about the Jesus's mother kind of being your intro into this, but you knew you had to cover cover other themes. Was yes. this one of those ones that you're like, ah, I'm not sure I want to get this one. Well, this one was tricky because, um, okay, so think of a, a night. Uh, we associate nights with like fairy tales and, you know, really good stories. Maybe we have some uh, funny Monty Python associations or whatever, <laughs> but it's all very abstract, right? Um, so the funny thing about medieval people writing about Jesus and night is that nights were real. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you were talking about an actual subsection of society. And so I went into it a little apprehensive because as a medievalist, uh, what I'm thinking about with knighthood is um, like the crusades, things that really went south that were still sort of reaping the problems of hundreds and hundreds of years later and um this sort of like a sort of supercharged um masculinity and so I was like okay how am I what what's uh what's the gift here um and and turns out there was a ton of gifts and I just was needed to pay closer attention but um I began to look at this poem called Pierce Plowman which is uh, William Langland's one of my favorite Middle English authors. And he writes uh, an allegory. And this allegory is of uh, basically Holy Week. The end of Piers Plowman is an allegory of Holy Week. And so he's writing from, when, from Palm Sunday through to uh, the harrowing of hell, which you mentioned is in the creeds, but again, a thing that a lot of us, don't, especially us Protestants, don't think about very much. Um, and right. so- it's he writes this and he he writes Jesus as a knight and now Jesus is not just a knight like a knight in shining armor this social role of power in the middle ages of the ruling classes but he's actually a knight who is dressed as a plowman and so this mm -hmm. was actually a picture of incarnation because you have the uh, in you know, in medieval England, like no knight is going to dress as a plowman. Like that, that's totally degrading. That's a huge social class difference. Um, you know, they would have looked down on plowmen. Uh, plowmen would have been poorer and, uh, you know, needed knightly protection. That's what the knights are there for. But in, in Langland's amazing portrait, uh, his Jesus, his Christ knight dresses as a plowman and is barefoot and jousts without weapons against the enemy. And so it becomes this amazing paradoxical picture of courage and of mm -hmm. the beauty of courage and Christ's uh, loving protection and uh, fighting for, for us in a, in a way that is totally unexpected, uh, totally surprising you he's not engaging in in violence but he's actually destroying violence and so it yeah. ends up um it was just astoundingly beautiful and uh yeah it was a really fun chapter that I really loved writing I, I studied the 19th century holiness movement and I um 
particular particularly like uh, the Salvation Army. And in that tradition, there's a lot of imagery connected to warfare, but it's oh, interesting yeah. how it off, obviously, that's a name. Uh, Army, so yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and it ends up often, though, having this slant that is, is reversing the yes. warfare, like that the warfare comes as a result of producing peace. Uh, yes. So, so like that's a, a similar image. And another 19th century figure, or well, kind of turn of the century, um, uh, Henry Clay Morrison, um, interesting, he was the founder of Asbury Theological Seminary and was a um, well-known voice within the holiness movement. Um, he he also, I, I find that like that tradition picked up on the harrowing of hell often. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, so I, 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 you alluded to it, like this idea of the Jesus, I, I prefer to say the descent to the realm of the dead, but it's, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, sadly, uh, John Wesley pulled out these words in the Methodist tradition, so we don't say he descended to hell in many Methodist contexts, but it's there in the Apostles' Creed, so John Wesley should, yeah. shouldn't have done that. But it, it's still, <laughs> what what I love, what you some of these poems that you brought in, it was that, this is what Henry Clay Morrison did, is that he kind of created a scene of what it might have looked like. Yes. That, that what could have what could have happened? What was the interaction like with Satan? Now we don't know that from scripture. We do know that it happened, but we don't know, have any more details. So is that something that was new to you? That the night image was prominent there? Yes. So that's a that was part of the the night imagery was they they liked medieval folks often connected it to the descent into hell um, because they, you know, that's a scary thing. And they saw that <laughs> as this like example of courage and um, endurance and fortitude beyond what we could have expected um, where it's just this beautiful fulfillment of longing. Uh, and so, yeah, they write that in Pierce Plowman, he writes this wonderful passage that I include in the book where uh, it's taking the perspective of the of the devils in hell. Yes, and yeah, I like, love that they one. See, they see this light in the distance. They're like, what is that? That is not good for us. And the light gets closer and closer. And they're like, what is it? And it's Christ uh, harrowing hell and um, descending into, into death. And it's um, and breaking down the gates. And that uh, that, of course, is classic um, scriptural imagery of the gates parting and and crumbling in in this uh, work of salvation, and so it's very stirring and exciting. Um, like you can picture it, like you said, you can picture it in your head like a movie, um, and so it's it's a really fun one. Well, and it fits well with movies, uh, and, and I think I I hope that uh, this current generation might even recover this doctrine. I'll say it's a doctrine of Jesus's descent to the dead. Mm -hmm. Um, because it, it it speaks to the kind of vibrant, strong, dramatic way that things happen. Yes. And this, C.S. Lewis picked up on this in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And yeah. at the end, you know, he comes in and he, he comes to all the places where the white witch has made people into stone. And he breathes on them. Yeah. So, like, this could really be, this is... Uh, I'm tempted to read it. I have the page open, but I, I'm a, I'm afraid I'll mispronounce it. Uh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't pronounce it. <laughs> so, but it's really, it's really dramatic. Um, anything else you want to say about the heroine of hell? I have another judge, uh, another uh, question I like to bring up about um, the knights. 
Oh, um, no, but I, I, lo- I actually had never associated Aslan breathing on the victims with the harrowing of hell, but that's perfect. Like that is definitely a harrowing of hell image. And I love that. So thank you for bringing that to my attention. Oh, well, there you go. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's what he had. If you read that passage again, um, I, I, I think that that's what's going on there now. Well, right. I mean, and it course. makes sense chronologically because it's after he comes back from the dead. And so he's right. sort of bringing the souls with him, which is just the classic medieval image of sort of this bringing of souls um, into redemption. So, yes. Uh, and, and, you know, you think about the um, um, resurrection hymn of Charles Wesley kind of connects to some of these ideas where he says, uh, so are we now where Christ has led following yeah. our triumphant head. Um, so that that image, I think, is is catching on to these similar ideas. And of course, Aslan, sorry, show my my uh, my uh, Chronicles of Narnia nerddom here. Uh, oh, Aslan flies no, at that moment, yeah. right? He truly flies <laughs> with, the, with yes. the girls on his back. Yes, so. yeah. Totally. Well, while love I'm talking it. about things like that, I love, too, that you picked up the themes from um, Tolkien and uh, and in this period about knights. And I would have never thought that. Uh, here's here's my experience with uh, Lord of the Rings and, and well, uh, some of it is I just know it's all so filled with imagery. And I feel like it's all so deep beyond like my experiences. It's just like a part of the world. And I'm always so emotional by watching it, reading it thinking through, but you kind of connected a few things to me that he was trying to particularly like um, in the, the, um, the return of the King emphasize, emphasizing the role of the knight and Jesus as knight. Yes. Yeah. I think uh, that's, what's really fun about reading medieval literature in particular. Uh, if you are a Tolkien or a Lewis fan is that you really are like, this is where all these themes are coming from. Like how exciting yeah. you read, you know, you read uh, these these ancient poems and, and you're like, oh my gosh, I know this idea. I've seen it before. It's in the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia or the Great Divorce. Um, and so that's a, a really fun bonus about reading all this stuff. Yeah, I, I love that connection. And, and so then like at the end of that, these chapters, like you're able to like walk people through devotional um, practices to think about these themes. Tell me about that. Like wh- what led you to do that? I mean, that's probably well, not something you did in graduate school. No, it's not. So part of the great gift of these texts is uh, not just sort of having head knowledge about them, even though that is a great gift that I don't want to ever downgrade, but actually um, learning how to read in such a way that your heart is open to them. And uh, that can be tricky for us in reading historical texts because often we're working really hard to understand what's going on um, because the context or the language is foreign to us. And so it was really important to me that I could help folks reading it who weren't medievalists and didn't have this background to encounter it not only with their head but with their heart too um, and to have space for these new writers and artists um, to to sink in and give them that room and so that was why I included these uh, scriptural passages and little practices uh, optional of course but at the end so that um, if people wanted to they could just sit with the idea for a little longer and um, you know, see what happens in their own hearts and minds, listening to these yeah. folks of the past. Yes. Uh, thank you for doing that. 
And I, I'm tempted to go through and take another three hours or go through every chapter and then you could just tell, but then nobody would have to buy the book. So I just want to, <laughs> I'm going to tell, just mention the various other titles, uh, the ways that medieval folks saw um, Jesus. So you also have a chapter on the lover, thinking about the nuptial metaphor, um, the word, the mother. Then you have a chapter called the good medieval Christian, the wounded God. Um, and, and some of those things you could, oh, okay, that that kind of connects like the wounded God. Like you think about that maybe. Right. maybe. <laughs> uh, but still, I think I want to just encourage folks to check this out. Grace, is there a, one of those, uh, maybe one of those chapters or one kind of emphasis that you like to talk about now, uh, just to highlight the folks. I know we won't be able to get to all of them, but I want to just give you a chance to tell about another another chapter there. Oh, um, oh gosh, that's a kind of hard. Well, um, I would say that two of the chapters um, that were really good for me to wrestle with personally. One was the Good Medieval Christian, which is kind of the least appealing initially because it's not as uh, strong of an image center point, but uh, it really made me think about the the ways in which I have put Jesus in a box of my own expectations, um, watching medieval people do that in that chapter and even becoming more, um, less judgmental of their of how they do that because realizing how deeply it is ingrained in all of us to do that um and so that was a good a a good exercise for me but i would say the wounded god chapter in which i talk about imagery of the crucifixion was very powerful for me personally to write to just really uh you know when we think of medieval art or older art of the crucifixion it's often very bloody and very uh gruesome to look at Mm. and that's true in the in the literature as well they're very into that aspect so it's off-putting for us to kind of go well why would they do that um what's going on there especially again in our in in protestant context often we don't even have christ's body on the cross when we look at the cross so what's this body and blood centric stuff doing what's going on and um and that was a, a very powerful meditation for me as i thought about okay these medieval folks are asking me to take really seriously the fact that God, uh, God, the son suffered on the cross and that this was real and with me in my suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a very profound point of meditation that I haven't stopped thinking about since writing that chapter. So, mm. yeah. And, and uh, Julian Norch comes up quite a bit in that chapter. Yes. Uh, yes. That'd be really helpful to, to think of them kind of the, the the raw way these images are shared so yeah this is this is really helpful grace thank you so much for this book i i find it really uh encouraging challenging at the same time um it i'm curious if you had in, in the new heavens and new earth at the restoration of all things you'll have a chance to talk with some who who are you going to be in line to see first of these authors that you've been studying Oh, it has to be Julian just because she's like, she, she, even the chapters that she's not appearing in, uh, she it has been such a teacher for me on a personal level. My husband always uh, lovingly makes fun of me because I call these people my friends and I really feel like they are my friends. I mean, they're with me in the body. So it is real in one sense, but um, this, I, this 
idea that she has been my my mentor in a lot of ways um and so i just teaching me so much about the nature of christ's love and um the character of god and so i i'd have to say julian of norwich for yeah. sure Gotcha. Well, uh, the title of my podcast is More to the Story, the name of my podcast, I guess I should say. Um, and I, the idea behind that is I want to get deeper to tell, hear about how people are developing thoughts and ideas and what's happening um, in the things that they're interested in. But it's also a theological reason that I want to think about more than just being saved and being forgiven, but um, yeah. experiencing sanctifying grace in this life. Um there's a third reason is I, I enjoy asking people, uh, is there more to the story of grace than is normally told? I imagine you'll be doing a lot of podcast interviews, conversations around this time and talking a lot about what you've studied. But what, what, what is there? Is there more to the story of grace? More to the story of the book? Of you, of, for you, your, of life, your own life. Oh, yeah, yeah. my own life. Oh, yes. So I- uh, Something you I like to say, do, a hobby or something? Yeah. Um, okay. Here's some some more to the story background things that uh, actually go into this arts in the texture of it, it which is that um, I'm a mom of three kids. And so I, I'm always uh, writing out of this double life of being a mom of very young, like fit throwing, uh, you know, barely potty trained children who are wonderful and the and so such gifts and also combining this love of medieval literature and they actually have fed each other in a really beautiful way and I'm also a podcaster and a very very amateur gardener which okay um, there you yes go. yes which is my sort of fun thing that I sometimes uh don't do a very good job on but it is a fun way to experiment and see what's happening and you know try to bring some beauty into the world so yeah there's some little what's your podcast about my the, podcast, the podcast yeah yeah it's it's called old books with grace and it is my um sort of my uh reflects my deep desire uh sometimes these things like old books whether they're theology novels poetry they get stuck in uh academic spaces which i'm very thankful for those spaces but um, a lot of people find them then hard to access and hard to think about without some guidance. And so old books with grace, uh, different guests come on to talk about their books and, uh, their research. And we talk about different old books of the past. So, uh, recently I had a George McDonald episode, who's the, you know, amazing Presbyterian minister and novelist of the 19th wow. century who influenced Lewis and Tolkien, uh, or I had a Louisa May Alcott episode, recently um so uh, i think coming up is some early christian poetry so there's all kinds of stuff it's not really pigeonholed it's all over the place and um that's my uh project of just let's let's make spaces outside of the academy to to read beautiful old things together that are challenging but worth it yes oh i love it well grace thanks so much for this book and thanks for coming on the podcast i, I hope that this is uh something that people can use and i want to encourage people to check out the show notes and find out more about the opportunity we have to learn from the saints learn from people who've gone ahead of us from 700 years ago jesus through medieval eyes thanks grace thank you so much